the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the Country Hour broadcasting today from Musselbrook in the Hunter Valley. There's been a, well, a little bit of rain around. We'll talk about that. And the Upper Hunter, well, it's a step closer to having its first wind farm built. The state's Independent Planning Commission has approved the construction of the Bowman's Creek wind farm on the outskirts of Musselbrook, but not everyone is happy. But I think we have to look at the transition that's happening through the mining industry and the energy industries and how it is going to change things. It's, it's inevitable. So we need to look elsewhere for energy. And at the moment, um, wind and solar are the lowest cost most reliable sources of energy for Australia. We'll hear more about that story shortly and uh, also, as I said, some interesting information about the rain. But you can always send us a text about the wind farms as well. 0467 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first up today, let's turn our attention to fire ants because the government says it's taking a hard-line approach to stop the threat and spread of fire ant. Earlier this month, police and DPI staff did spot checks of vehicles coming over the border from Queensland. Dubbed Operation Victor, 100 high-risk vehicles were stopped, mainly trucks, and 55 came from fire-and-infested areas in uh, southern Queensland. Disturbingly, four vehicles were turned away as the trucks hadn't been properly cleaned or they didn't have the correct documentation to transport soil and plant material over into New South Wales. Minister Tara Moriarty says the unannounced blitz shows that they're taking the biosecurity threat very seriously. And I asked her uh, first up whether baiting was now back up and running after the rains had stopped. Yes, absolutely. So we're doing that uh, across the region in Ballina where the ants were last discovered. Uh, Thankfully to date, uh, we haven't found any more. So the plan is still working uh, and we're still on track. But this is going to be an ongoing operation uh, for us uh, and for for, uh, the community uh, of New South Wales to be vigilant not to look out for these ants. Now, I gather that there was a delay because of the rain. Is that right? Uh, yeah, the weather has uh, had uh, an impact on that. But again, the program is working. So we've been rolling out the, the baiting um, and other initiatives to make sure that we're capturing um, any possible cases uh, of ants in the surrounding area. And we've also uh, kept going with our whole campaign on this. So we had our third um, uh, incarnation of Operation Victor on the New South Wales Queensland border over the course of the weekend, working with police. Um, to make sure that people understand the rules and aren't bringing materials uh, from Queensland into New South Wales. So what what's involved in that? Is that like spot checks of cars? Yeah, So and trucks. So right. uh, cars and trucks, over 100 uh, were stopped on the border by police uh, over the course of uh, last weekend. Um, four were turned back uh, because the trucks hadn't been cleaned uh, and they didn't have the correct paperwork. Uh, but it was really pleasing to know that uh, when police and, and DPI officials uh, interviewed and engaged with drivers uh, and businesses of uh, in their trucks um, crossing the border, most people really understood the rules and they understood what was required and they did understand how important this is. So um, disappointing that four trucks had to be turned around, but I'm glad that out of 100, uh, that's all that had to happen. So these were trucks, they didn't have like uh, a lot of material on them, they were just hadn't been cleaned properly, is that right? Hadn't been cleaned or didn't have the right paperwork. So uh, we're taking every bit of this very seriously and if you haven't ticked all the boxes, you can't come into New South Wales. 
But and so how? But how often do you do this operation? Is it just a sort of spasmodic thing every here and there? Well, we've done it three times now, uh, and the reason we don't notify people in advance is that it's about making sure that people are complying. So uh, the operation will continue, uh, and it will be spot checks. So people do need to remain. Uh, they do need to keep following the rules because at any point the police will be checking uh, materials and drivers that are coming across the border. And can they get potentially fined for that? Absolutely. So the fines for individuals are $1.1 million and for businesses $2.2 million. There's very significant fines uh, involved in breaking the rules. Um, but we're also continuing our education program. So uh, we're making sure that people understand the rules, uh, engaging with businesses uh, around the border. The trucks that were turned back did come from uh, zones in Queensland that have had uh, fire ants. Uh, and we've got a community engagement program that is still rolling out around the Ballina community to make sure that people really do understand uh, what's required. But there are significant fines. So if people do break the rules, uh, it's very significant fines. So those four trucks, were they fined and how much were they fined? They were turned back, so they right. were not allowed to cross into New South Wales um, because my job is to protect uh, New South Wales and so they weren't allowed to come into the state until they comply uh, with the rules that we have in place. So technically if they haven't come over the border then they haven't committed an offence so you turn them away? Yes. And But that's still concerning though for over a fairly short period of time for compliance... Uh, well, what's good is that we've had the operation in place to turn them back. Uh, and again, police will be con continuing to conduct this operation at any time. Uh, so we'll continue to engage with the community. People have to understand the rules. This can't all be on government. We all have to be in this together. Biosecurity is everybody's responsibility. Uh, and people need to, particularly businesses uh, who are uh, bringing high-risk materials uh, across the border from Queensland into New South Wales, must understand the rules. Is there any more intelligence as to how it got in in the first place, or or, or how and how we got this second, uh, you know, the second one near Ballina? Yeah, the tracing operation is still continuing, and and once I've got confirmation of that, I'll I'm, I'll be I'll confirm that uh, with you and and with the community. I think it's important that people uh, do understand. Uh, but at this stage, we do believe that it has come from Queensland. Right. Okay. So that, that that at this stage, that's what you're thinking, and you're yes. you're just waiting to confirm that. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'll wait for the official advice from the experts. Right. And they're both, and the Ballina one from the same. It's like an, uh, an another one from Queensland as well, or from. Yeah. So that tracing operation is still continuing, and and but we do believe that it has come from southeast Queensland. Yes. Right. Okay. And uh, you know, so you're saying that you have this operation oper called Operation Victor. Is that right? You, you're going to have that continuing, but you're just not going to telegraph it. Uh, yeah, this is this is the operation uh, with police, uh, and at any time um, there will be more spot checks on the border um, with police and stopping uh, and checking vehicles that are crossing. Uh, I'm not going to pre-advertise it because. Mm want to make sure that people are complying in between um, but there's plenty of signage uh, around the border we've still got our uh, usual operations checking people uh, in between and I do really want people to understand the significant fines involved if you if you do think you can kind of just come across and, and bring materials without following the right rules um, we have a whole operation in place uh, and uh, not only are you doing the wrong thing, but if something, if you bring something in that you shouldn't, you're letting down the entire state of New South Wales. So we want 
people to participate in this program and understand the seriousness of it. So this could be householders bringing turf over from Queensland or or it could be, you know, companies or uh, hardware stores or, you know, builders, things like that. All of, all of the above. So people, whether they're running businesses or whether it's individuals, must understand the rules here. Okay, and I just wanted to just ask you one more question about um, Scott Hansen. Is, sure. is it the case that you weren't happy with the way that uh, the Varroa mite and fire ant were handled and that's why uh, Scott has left? No, I worked really closely with Mr Hansen. Uh, I wish him well for uh, whatever he does in the future. I thought he did a terrific job um, at DPI uh, and the work of DPI will continue just as it has uh, in relation to fire ants, um, I'll continue to work closely with the department on the plans that we've got in place uh, to manage uh, these biosecurity issues. Uh, I'm still in touch with Mr Hanson and I absolutely wish him all the best uh, for the future. Yeah, because we're hearing some, you know, some scuttlebutt from the opposition maybe that that's what happened. Uh, look, I don't play politics with biosecurity. This is too important. I'm focused on making sure that we're doing everything we can to protect New South Wales. Uh, and the department is doing a terrific job getting on with that work. Uh, and I'm working closely with them to do that. Um, I, I wouldn't believe rumours that are being spread by the opposition. Uh, I think they should be part of making sure that New South Wales is protected, not playing politics. Minister, thanks for your time. Thank you. Minister of Agriculture, Tara Moriarty, you're listening to The Country Hour, broadcasting from Musselbrook in the Hunter Valley. It's a quarter past 12. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, after nearly 20 months operating under biosecurity, Varroa mite emergency orders, there's been a change for New South Wales beekeepers with the move away from eradication to management of Varroa mite. The first control order was issued by the state government last week. But a clause stating authorised officers had the power to still euthanise hives if needed has raised confusion and concern for the industry. That control order has now been updated. The Australian Honeybee Industry Council's CEO, Danny Laferve, explained why to Kim Honan. Oh, understandably, we've got an industry uh, that has been subject to euthanasia for a few, for a couple of years now, um, and has caused a lot of grief and emotional damage in our industry. And our industry is um, hypersensitive to that type of thing at the moment. It's not unusual to have those sort of powers in the control order, or it was even in the emergency order to allow. Um, authorised officers to be able to act when they find hives that have been neglected or not managed. Um, but we recognise the sensitivity uh, around those that wording um, and have uh, negotiated with the DPI to have that removed from the order. Had industry been consulted about that before the order was published? Uh, look, we're, we're operating as industry liaison officers uh, in the response. Uh, we had communications uh, before Christmas around the, the control order and, and there being some reasonable constant consultation uh, toward, the, towards the end of last year with multiple stakeholders uh, beyond us as well. Uh, the most recent changes, because it is a control order, there's some different rules around what we can see and can't see, um, but we were uh, provided um, some consultation right at the last minute, which unfortunately, because of the time pressures, uh, the, we weren't able to provide feedback at that point. So officers cannot go in and euthanise hives and as per that last control order that is definitely not on the cards now or is the, is the DPI still able to do that? So the DPI are, are 
um, primary operation is under the Biosecurity Act. Under the Biosecurity Act, authorised officers do have power, which is no different to what they've had for a very long time um, for dealing with issues like AFB and now with Varroa. So they still have the ability to be able to um, manage neglected hives uh, or manage hives that, that beekeepers are not willing to look after as well. Um, but it's not an explicit power in the control order. Okay, so that would include euthanasia then? Uh, Potentially, if that was required, and that's a power that they've always had. Had there been some concern that beekeepers have been neglecting their hives? Is that why it was included? Yeah, there has been some hives um, that surveillance teams have come across where beekeepers um, uh, are saying that they're not willing to manage um, those mites and and, uh, willing just to let them die out. So they wanted some powers around being able to assist those beekeepers in cleaning up those hives. And look, they still have those powers under the Biosecurity Act, but they have to go through a different set of approvals, um, and it's a bit of a slower process. So we're, we're happy with that uh, level of, a higher level of scrutiny and approvals before euthanasias occur. And a big week for the industry. The National Management Group is meeting on Friday. What can you tell me about the plan that's being brought forward to that meeting? Yeah, it's been a really long process to try and negotiate this transition to management plan. It is a a plan that's very focused on education and extension. In fact, 70% 70 of the budget is towards that activity. Uh, It's something that we're very, very keen to get approved on Friday and we're hopeful that uh, we can get through the Friday meeting with an outcome at the end of it where we can get on and start rolling out the training and the extension officers on the ground to really support the beekeepers and providing the information that everyone's uh, so desperately looking for at the moment. So you're hoping that there is support to have those extension officers on the ground for a couple of years? Uh, we're hopeful for a couple of years, but uh, under the deed, the rules dictate that it should be a 12-month process. So we're having to negotiate and pitch exceptional circumstances that it needs to go beyond 12 months just for those extension officers. Uh, and we'll see on Friday whether that's successful or not. Danny Laferve is the CEO of the Australian Honeybee Industry Council and the country has contacted the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries for comment. It's uh, 20 minutes past 12. The New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the Upper Hunter is a step closer to having its first wind farm built. The state's Independent Planning Commission has approved the construction of the Bowman's Creek wind farm on the outskirts of Musselbrook. The IPC did say the scale needs to be reduced by two turbines, which will take the total to 54. The approval also comes with strict conditions of consent, including monitoring and reducing noise and visual impacts, minimising traffic congestion and community disturbance during the build, and ensuring land is rehabilitated once the project is decommissioned. Local landholder Nigel Wood was staunchly against the proposal. He raised concerns during the IPC process about being disturbed at night by flashing lights from a planned turbine near his house. I've been opposing the Bowman's Creek Wind Farm since 2018. I'm not surprised. I'm actually down in Canberra at the moment. I've been attending the rally against reckless renewable energy. And the renewable energy business is running roughshod everywhere throughout Australia. Where do you draw the line? It doesn't have a social licence to operate with the vast majority of submissions opposing the proposal. I understand that this was quite a personal fight for you, the impacts it had on, on your home. Do you think about whether you want to continue living there? 
I thought about it, but we'll just see what happens. Nigel Wood being uh, t- being interviewed there by Bindi Bryce, now head of development with uh, Arc Energy, the company behind the project, says it's worked to mitigate concerns by local residents. Martin Poole told Amelia Bernasconi he's excited to finally start construction. It's important to look at the big picture. I totally understand the concerns that have just been raised and that have been raised by other people. But I think we have to look at the transition that's happening through the mining industry and the energy industries and how it is going to change things. It's it's inevitable. Um, Companies are free to build more coal capacity. Um, It's not happening in most of the Western world because it's difficult to finance it. And the concern is that the environmental impact of it over its life cycle will mean that it's not an economic proposition. So we need to look elsewhere for energy. And at the moment, um, wind and solar are the lowest cost, most reliable sources of energy for Australia. Is New South Wales, are we sort of, or Australia, late to the party with renewables when we are seeing, like Liddell went offline last year, do you think we need to be fast-tracking projects such as yours to get, you know, it'll be a long build, I imagine? I think the um, the, the longest um, part of the development is actually behind us, Amelia, I'm happy to say. The build should take less than two years to, to go from from practical commencement to substantial completion. It's not going to practically commence yet. But the build time is actually quite well defined. And the builders, once they've mobilised people and equipment to the site, want to get it done in a safe and effective time frame. It's, it's not in anybody's interest to drag out the build process. So um, I, I think we do need to make sure that we have a good pipeline of, of new sites. And we certainly need to take into account the social factors that are being raised by your, your previous caller and others. But I think um, in terms of coming late to the party, it's not terrible. The price of solar and wind is much lower than it was, say, 15 years ago when, um, for example, in Germany, there was a great push to build wind power. We're getting the benefits of all the research and development and um, the evolution of turbine designs over the last 15 years, and we're now getting very, very cost-effective wind power. So we did lag a little bit, but there are actually some benefits in that. However, as you say, the coal's retiring. It's, it's worn out. It's reached the end of its useful life. So we need to crack on with it now. Martin Poole's the head of development with Arc Energy, who's got that approval now to be, build the Bowman's Creek wind farm. Let's take a look at the project because the IPC did ask that you reduce it a little bit. They've put some strict conditions around it. Yes. So, yeah, yes. what? how does it look now going forward? It looks like uh, a very well-researched project that's been put on public exhibition several times. It's had numerous opportunities um, for government agencies and members of the community to respond. We've listened, we've changed the design a bit. As you say, there are two fewer turbines than actually went in our final planning application to the state government. So it's a project that I feel has been extremely well worked over. It is very well understood. It has completed all of the planning studies it needs to do. And I think it will be very successful over the next 20 to 30 years. Arc Energy's Head of Development, Martin Poole, now State Member for Upper Hunter, Dave Lazell, says he can't stand wind farms and is not impressed by the decision, but that the energy grid does need to be shored up. Uh, most importantly, we need to think about the people um, who live out there um, in you know, uh, Muscle Creek, McCulley's um, Gap. Um, it really must be really upsetting for them. And uh, for local residents around these projects, um, they are absolutely in their face and and probably the biggest problem we have with these projects. It's fine if, if you've agreed to have the wind farm on your property um, and you get the revenue from it, 
but it, there's a major problem for those who have to look at it. And that's why I can't stand wind farms at all. Um, understanding, of course, that as a state, we do need to move forward um, in terms of um, securing our energy supply. We need to make sure that we do have a good, secure um, energy system. Um, but certainly regional New South Wales has taken a heavy lifting of the renewable energy um, transition, and, and this project is one example of those that really um, is upsetting the local community. It is something that we now have to bear, but there's very little in the way of community benefit from having it. And I think that's really um, where the, a lot of the problems are, um, are that for a local community to have a wind um, farm or wind power station, um, you know, there is no local um, benefit and that social licence isn't there. So therefore, you know, you're going to get this massive opposition um, against these projects. We need to find a way for the local community to benefit, um, whether it's energy prices, um, highly discounted, or, or some way to get a benefit um, so that people can actually swallow these, these projects. Because we've got a lot more in the country at the moment, and you know the federal government and the state government are talking about speeding these up. And now that's something I will be fighting all the way, because the last thing I want to see is these projects sped up because we really have to step very carefully. Member for Upper Hunter, Dave Lazell, speaking there with Amelia Bernasconi. It's 26 past 12. You're with Michael Condon for the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Broadcasting from Musterbrook in the Hunter Valley. Tomorrow we'll be broadcasting from Narrabri. We're putting the spotlight on the hemp industry. There's a field day on at the University of Sydney campus tomorrow, so we'll be uh, broadcasting from that between 12 and 1, so make sure you uh, you tune in for that. Uh, and you can always send us a text, 0467 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. Before we go to news headlines and weather report, Stephen's oyster grower says it's too early to tell if the region will be able to completely recover from a deadly oyster disease, QX disease, which is not harmful to humans but can wipe out oysters, devastated the region a couple of years ago. Several growers have since left the industry. Don Burgoyne, is, uh, he's got a family farm that's operated for more than 60 years and says there have been glimpses of recovery from the latest test results. But as he told Romy Stevens, he's not getting his hopes up just yet. It came out of nowhere. It's a naturally occurring parasite, so it's, and it's not understood what the triggers are for it to just explode but it did it exploded in Port Stephens and we had massive mortalities uh, 90% of oysters for some guys ourselves included we also had Pacific oysters that we'd uh, got to try and grow unfortunately two-thirds of those died for another reason so we, yeah we lost 5.2 million oysters which sounds like a, a, an awesome amount but when they're tiny we do have we have two and a half million a year so uh we were building up. It was going very, very well. The, the industry in Port Stephens was absolutely booming. Everyone was putting on building sheds, buying equipment, buying new boats. Uh, so it was a, a really sad time for it all happened because many are, uh, have borrowed money to do that and so they're finding it very hard. What's the mood like amongst growers like yourself now? Well, just recently... Uh, this is a new season. What happens with QX? It's a, it comes, you know, in infection window, and we're in the we're in the midst of it now, really. And even for the Pacific oysters as well, it's a time when they could be dying. 
and for us as a business, it's it's the first positive sign we've had that it's uh, it's looking better. Where we've only got 10% mortality in our Pacific oysters, we've changed some of the ways we do things to try and uh, trying to uh, do it smarter. And then for the Sydney rock oysters, um, though numbers are low, the, the the sampling and the testing that's being done by Department of Primary Industry has really good results just at the moment. This time last year, 28 out of 30 oysters had QX. This time, this year, only three. And not even showing disease, they just have it existing in them. Uh, It's a similar test to what they do for COVID. It's very sensitive. And so it just meant that it it actually was present, but not not really as uh, an infection. So three out of 30 instead of 28 out of 30. So that's very positive. Uh, Nothing is certain in this life, but there's plenty of work being done in the background too in in trying to uh, develop uh, hatchery selectively bred oysters to be disease resistant. And that's been going on for a while. It hasn't been as successful as we hope, but there is a particular light in the end of the tunnel because... Oysters from the Richmond River, which is up near Ballina, that have uh, been exposed to QX forever, there's actually oysters up there that survive. And they've taken them as uh, broodstock and brought it into the, the hatchery system uh, and the, and the uh, family lines that they have to try and develop really uh, resistant, disease-resistant stock. And it's about to hit the farms, which will be really good to see how that performs. But uh, only six months ago, it was pretty gloomy, uh, and it still is for many growers in Port Stephens. Some areas in Port Stephens are being hit still pretty hard, um, and their mortalities are 50 and 60% already, and so it's, uh, it's very hard. Don Burgoyne from XL Oysters at Port Stephens speaking to Romy Stevens about the latest QX disease testing results and how the region is starting to slowly look at recovering. On the text line, quite a lot of texts actually today. Let's go through some of them now because we've got a little bit of time. Uh, someone saying if the authorities won't underground the transmission lines, then they should then they better build the wind towers on the north and south head of Sydney Harbour, says Lloyd at Tumbarumba. Uh, Dave in Trundle says no mention of the numerous intermodal express freight trains from Acacia Ridge, Queensland into New South Wales. Are they being checked for fire ants, says Dave. Uh, Jason says, don't wind turbines make your curtains fade? Uh, someone else has said, um, I can't stand big ugly holes in our state that will never be filled in by the company that dug them and made huge profits. Wind farm whinges uh, make him a bit uh, irritable, says Steve. And uh, so he's, I think he's referring to the uh, mining industry there as opposed to wind farms. Uh, and um, also um, uh, someone saying uh, the IPC are rubber stamping energy poverty. Uh, they're saying that uh, solar generation is uh, nonsensical and has no benefits. Uh, it's totally dependent on the weather and will never be reliable or affordable. Uh, that one from the Riverina. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's uh, Shortly we'll have some weather details, but before we do that, we're going to get some news headlines now from Amelia Bernasconi. Thank you, Amelia. Good afternoon. The lawyer for a police officer charged over the alleged tasering of a great-grandmother at an aged care facility in the Snowy Mountains says he intends to plead not guilty to manslaughter. 
33-year-old Christian White attended Cooma local court this morning to face four charges in relation to the alleged tasering of Claire Nowland at a nursing home in May last year. Mrs Nowland passed away a week later. Today, Mr White's lawyer told the court his client intends to plead not guilty to manslaughter and all other charges were dismissed. The New South Wales Premier, Chris Minns, says his government is engaged in fruitful negotiations with GPs over planned changes to payroll taxes. GPs are warning out-of-pocket fees for consults will rise between $12 and $15 under changes to the state's payroll tax scheme. The state government brought in a 12-month pause on those tax changes while it consulted with medical groups. Mr Minns says he's not prepared to reveal details of those negotiations, but he says it has been positive. In federal politics, the Assistant Federal Minister for Indigenous Australians says the findings of a scathing report into the Closing the Gap targets aren't a surprise. Closing the, ba- closing the Gap policies aimed at improving life expectancy, education, health and housing for First Nations people will fail, according to a new report from the Productivity Commission. Senator Malandiri McCarthy, who is also the Minister for Indigenous Health, says the need for reform is urgent. And in some sporting news, Steph Catley has been named the captain of the Matildas 23-player squad for this month's Olympic qualifiers against Uzbekistan. Beloved striker Sam Kerr, of course, is out. But in some good news for 35-year-old Canberra striker Michelle Heyman, she's been called up into the squad. This is for the first time since the 2018 Asian Cup. And mm. we from the news team at one. A proven performer, though. And, mm. uh, yeah, they're, they're struggling to fill the gap that's been left by... Um by uh, 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 Sam Kerr, Sam Kerr oh, being left through, out. Yeah, the ACL the injury. Cup. I don't know. They never seem to. Sports people never seem to come back as 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 good as they were when they've had ACLs. Unfortunately, Miracles I could be wrong. Hide. Exactly. Yeah. I, <laughs> we'll hold on I, to hope. I could be wrong. There have been a few soccer players that have done it. So yeah, <laughs> could be wrong. I want, they wouldn't want to put the mockers on her because she's been such a, a great player for Australia. Mm. Thanks, Amelia. Thank you. It's uh, time to find out what's happening with the uh, weather details now. Chris Webb's at the bureau. Good afternoon. Hey, Michael. How are you going? Good. On the way up here to Musselbrook, quite a bit of rain around the place. Not a huge amount, but just sort of steady rain or steady sort of drizzle, I suppose. Is that a feature of a, a few parts of the state at the moment? Yeah, there are some uh, showers and rain areas around the northeast third or so of the state. So it's nice to be able to report that the Hunter has had some fairly reasonable yes. rain in the last 24 <laughs> hours. It's sort of the only part of New South Wales that stayed dry in the January period, I think, or was below average, um, sort of the Hunter area in the southern mid-north coast. Everywhere else was uh, average to above average, I believe. But yeah, um, quite a few totals of 20 to 50 millimetres in the Hunter southern mid-north coast area uh, in the 24 hours to 9 this morning. So nice to report 59 millimetres for Dungog. And uh, I think the top there in that area is Kerry's Peak up on Barrington Tops at 64 millimetres in 24 hours. Uh, there is also, and, and yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's sort of raining lightly now um, through the Hunter, less than 10 millimetres, I think, since 9am, but that cloud covers that you're, that you're talking about, Michael's keeping the temperature down. I noticed only uh, 18 degrees at Cessnock midday. Um, Went where it was 40, I think, on Sunday from memory. <laughs> Jade, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Six, uh, 17, it's going. Yeah. Mm, mm. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, there's a, a trough that's slow moving uh, sort of around the northwest slopes and plains, kicking off some rain areas as well. So there's a place up there just called, just uh, northwest of Inverell, uh, forgive the pronunciation, Kulatai, uh, has had 73 millimetres to 9am this morning and a further 13 
millimetres since 9am. So there is, like, uh, there in the northwest slopes and plains, some decent rain about, even though it's a, a little bit patchy. Um, so, yeah, the other the other story, I suppose, it's linked is the, the cooler nature of the weather at the moment with this subtly change pushing most of the way across the state. It's just that northwest slopes and plains area where it's... Um, slowed up that's where the troughs are sitting at the moment uh so yeah the warmest spot in the state is only 29 degrees at Walga. it's still a bit humid there but yeah compared to what we've had um yeah you know 10 of <laughs> yeah, it's a big difference, that's there. right, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, 40 degrees and humid, which is really, really unpleasant. Um, what, to, what, what, what can we expect for the next few days? Yeah, that trough that I mentioned just moves slowly west in the next couple of days. Uh, I think it gradually weakens as well. And there's a new high develop over the southern Tasman Sea, so southeastly stream, maintaining cooler weather across um, coastal eastern parts of the state. And with that trough and cloud associated, it'll be cooler through most of the northern inland too than we've had and probably cooler, quite a bit cooler than normal. As far as rainfall goes, um, coast and ranges, just a few uh, tomorrow and Friday, or well, each day, today, tomorrow and Friday, a few showers about the coast and ranges, but mostly in the north. And uh, also some showers and thunderstorms across the northern inland, um, as I suggested today, but also tomorrow and Friday. And there's a possibility of a severe storm with very localised heavy rain across that northern, sort of northwest slopes and plains today, and then sort of the central north tomorrow, I suppose, and a bit further to the northwest on Friday. But yeah, very localised, not the sort of widespread stuff that we've had over the last couple of days. Um, but, but, but here, fairly cool conditions continuing for a while, so you're not going to heat up. Yeah, yeah, it looks that way. It looks like it'll, um, yeah, stay quite quite cool like maybe some places will get into the low to mid 30s but not widespread uh in the west probably more in the sort of uh southwest um and then they'll start to creep up in the southwest into the high 30s or closer to 40 uh across the weekend and then temperatures should increase in the eastern parts um monday monday tuesday next week there's another southerly surge another trough to move along the coast uh, over the weekend and a subtly surge associated with that. So I don't think that's going to affect um, the inland much as far as rainfall goes. But showers should sort of increase again along the coast on Saturday from the south, heading northward, I suppose. And, um, yeah, the focus will move to the northern half of the coast on Sunday and that trough may just sit there as sort of a coastal trough and produce some potentially moderate falls, coast and north coast and ranges on Sunday. Bit of uncertainty about that, but we're keeping an eye on that uh, before a new ridge comes in for the early part of the new week. And as I said, things start to warm up again. All right, yeah, Chris. Yep. No, no, we'll leave leave it there, uh, Chris. Thanks for that. All right, see you, Michael. Chris Webb at the bureau. There, it's uh, coming up to twenty minutes to one. You're with Michael Condon for the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Getting through uh, some of these texts, quite a lot of uh, texts coming through on this issue of the wind farm issue particularly, uh, although we got a uh, text from Rod at Lake Ajelago saying 46 millimetres of rain there, so he was pretty happy with that. Uh, also, uh, someone's texted in, Brad from Maxville says, not in my backyard, it's all, a, it's all a great attitude towards wind and solar until our bush burns and our farmland 
is no longer productive due to catastrophic climate change. Brad says he's lived near large wind turbines before. He says they're not offensive. He says he finds them quite beautiful in the way they work. They aren't noisy and they're not offensive and it's just what's uh, driven into the media from those who don't uh, want to come out of the dark coal age. That's Brad's view. Um, and Ken says wind farms far better than the dirty coal mines and heavy and uh, deadly air pollution from power stations, which is sickening, says Ken. So there's quite a few texts there on that issue as well. Uh, and uh, someone says, why no, um, why no uh, wind towers in Marrickville or Bondi? And uh, also says we should stop calling them farms as well. It's uh, coming up to... Uh, uh, what is the time? It's coming up to uh, uh, a tw- uh, 19 minutes to one here on New South Wales Country. I wasn't sure where the clock was here in the studio. <laughs> You're listening to the Country Hour. Well, we're talking about the rain there. And after hot and dry conditions, farmers in the state's west are welcoming in recent rainfall to best prepare for the winter cropping season. Abigail McLaughlin runs a mixed farming operation 40 kilometres northwest of Ningen and received 120 millimetres on Monday night. Ondine Sacksmith had a chat to her to hear more about the falls, those rain, that rainfall, and what that's going to mean for the property. The last three weeks have been just very, very hot out at home, and we saw this front coming, and we, we actually thought we'd miss it. We looked at it on the radar, and it was going south. And even probably as late as 9 o'clock last night, we looked, and it, it just looked like we might be getting a bit, but not much. And it started to rain just after nine and we went to bed and I got up at about five to do some work and I thought, oh, we've had a bit of rain and we didn't hear it because we had the air conditioning on and the fan on. Well, my husband had a bit of rain, but when we checked the rain gauge and saw it had 120 mils in it, we were actually quite surprised and rang our neighbours and they'd all had similar. So it appears it's rained pretty much right along the Duck Creek. Um, probably, if, you know, from Geralambone or north of Geralambone right through to Warren. Um, and a lot of people I've spoken to have got had, you know, 100 mils or, or a bit more. Yeah, wow. So it's quite a bit of rain. Can you tell me what does this mean for you guys? Um, well, it, it's sort of going to make us think about our winter cropping. We're already planning a few things. We're going into the cropping season, hopefully, with a full profile of moisture. Uh, we'll just have to make a few decisions now regarding weeds management. We were very dry. Our, our, we'd, we'd had some good rain around Christmas, but all the, the stock feed had pretty much hayed off, so... This might just freshen things up. Um, it's it's hard to say. It's a funny time of year, you know. Um, don't grow a lot of weeds at this time of year, but, uh, you know, really after 2019, we'll never knock back rain. Yeah, and as you said there, you've got some decisions now to make and whatnot regarding, you know, weeds management and whatnot. Have you have you got dams on your place? Has it filled up your dams? Um, yeah, it would have done. We, we uh, live on two permanent creeks, the duck. Creek and the Gunning Bar Creek, so we do use. We're, we're lucky to have those for stock water access, but we do also have dams. And um, just before Christmas, just before it started raining, before Christmas, we actually ran out of rainwater for the first time ever. Like we didn't even run out during 2000 and 
17 to 19, um, and we had to get rainwater from town then. So um, it's fantastic just even to fill up our rainwater tanks. Um, but yes, it will you know, help stock water as well. Ningan-based mixed farmer Abigail McLaughlin speaking there to Ondine Slacksmith or staying with the rain and farmers across the central west have received significant, significant rainfall with one farmer believing it's the best summer in memory. Condoblin saw the largest falls in the region with more than 90 millimetres while Canoundra received about 75 millimetres. Condoblin cotton and cattle producer Guy Schumark says uh, it set them up perfectly for the winter sowing. Last night, we had uh, anywhere from 80 to 90 mils, which has been pretty widespread around the condo district, of what I've heard, up to 90, uh, up to 100 mil, 140 mil, someone had north. So I think that three to four inches has been the general case around the district. And, um, yeah, it's been on top... That rain's been on top of a pretty wet summer since the end of November. But, um, yeah, we've had a lot of rain. I'm not sure we're probably over 300 mil now. We'll be up to 350 mil for the last three months, so... Out here at Condoblin, it's a fair bit of rain in a short amount of time. And what will that mean for your winter sowing operation and, and getting those crops ready for uh, for the months to come? Yeah, well, Sydney's up to a good start to the winter winter cropping program. We were already pretty wet before even last night. Been uh, madly trying to spray and work up a bit of country and keep the keep the country in good condition, the weeds off and everything else. So things are looking good. Seed wise. It's uh, fantastic out here at the moment. That grain, loosens are going well, and the native grasses and everything. Uh, yeah, it has been a big turnaround, that's for sure. Yeah, and for your after you know the the last couple of years that you guys have had with you know the floods that in 2022 and before that even, how does it feel that you are starting to get you know the, a nice amount of rain for for what you need, not too much and not too little? Oh yeah, no, it's good. It's definitely, uh, like I said, it's a good turnaround from. The end of last season, because our last winter crop we were below average, and then the year before where well, we got flooded out, so we're still getting over that one. But uh, yeah, to have, a, have such a green summer and, and good good amount of rain has um, been fantastic. And and for your livestock as well, with those feed levels, how does that feel considering there was some pretty some pretty dry times last year and it was looking pretty hairy there for a little bit? Oh yeah, no, definitely on the stock side of things. Oh, yeah, we had cattle. I had a cattle everywhere on adjustment all over the place, and I still do actually. But and we we're feeding a heap. We we're feeding four or five hundred cows and calves. And as soon as it started raining in December, we've been able to stop doing that. And, and now I've got that much food. I don't have enough animals at home. But um, yeah, that's been a massive turnaround because uh, after the predictions of a Lenina and everything else, um, I thought we we're going to be into a pretty tough summer. But it's actually been a excellent summer. I don't think I can remember a summer like it. Actually, it's been that good. And, yeah, really on that, you know, with the things we've seen with prices and, and stuff like that as well, how does it feel for your livestock to, to have these kind of conditions and, and to see that market start getting up and, and having enough feed? Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> the stock market is a big turnaround, a massive turnaround, which is very good because I got, I mean, the end of last year there, got uh, the end of the spring there, it was the dish price for cattle and sheep as well, I suppose, but all more cattle. But I, was, I sold my last lot of feed steers on average below $1,000, which... I don't think we've seen since 2006, so hopefully we don't see those prices again. And cows and calf units were down to a thousand or thirteen hundred, but I see you know, now they're up around that two, two and a half grand. So it's been a massive turnaround, which uh, we definitely needed because those those prices back then were uh, ridiculous, too low.
Condoled by Mix Farmer Guy Schumark speaking there with Hamish Cole about the recent rainfall they've received, 90 millimetres at uh, Condoblin, so they're pretty happy with that. Talking about rainfall, uh, Tim's texted in from Cropper Creek to say 125 millimetres of rain between Cropper Creek and Kulatai. It's uh, coming up to uh, 12 minutes to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today, a scathing report into closing the gap. Governments urged to do more to improve the lives of Indigenous Australians. A mother in the US convicted of involuntary manslaughter for giving a firearm to her son who went on to carry out a school shooting. And rental sting, undercover inspectors sent into properties in Victoria to crack down on real estate rip-offs. Those stories and much more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. And on the country, our Australian farmers export 80% of their wool for processing in China. But could the industry wind back the clock and restart domestic manufacturing? New Commonwealth-funded report has looked at a business case for early-stage processing in Australia and earmarked three potential locations. Adam Dawes is a general manager of Wool Producers Australia and told reporter Josh Becker there's a good case for diversifying the wool supply chain. Yeah, I think, Josh, there's an obvious need for um, increased diversification of wool processing. As listeners would be aware, the vast majority of our wool trending around about 80% of the wool that we produce currently all goes to China for processing. 50% of that is retained in China through until the point of retail consumption, and the other 50% is exported to third countries, either as final products or intermediate wool products. And with that market concentration and that reliance on a single market there's some obvious trade risks that come about so diversification of trade would be a good thing for the australian wool industry be that domestic processing to diversified countries or sending greasy wool or potentially scoured wool to diversified food countries would also be a good thing Wool growers have often raised concerns about the over-reliance on one main buyer for Australian wool, but some other analysts have argued that it's actually a symbiotic relationship where China is reliant as well on Australia to keep those mills running. And that's one of the key reasons that some say that it wasn't targeted like wine and barley were with tariffs. Do you see any merit to that kind of argument? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we certainly acknowledge that the the relationship that we've got with the Chinese wool processors is an extremely valuable one and it will continue to be valuable in the future. I think we need to try and ensure that we, I guess, uh, achieve supply chain diversification as we see growing demand for the wool fibre. And I think that growing demand and the capacity that will serve that demand can be established in potential growth markets like India, Bangladesh and Vietnam that have also been assessed as part of this work. You've commissioned this significant report from Deloitte um, where it looks at some potential opportunities for the industry to look at early stage wool processing. Uh, What did it find? What this piece of work has now looked to do is to really develop some roadmaps and some tangible pathways of how we can implement that domestic and diversified processing. So now the, the findings of this report and that really um, you know, I think it's evidenced by the reports there's quite a bit of work that's been done now needs to be taken back into the industry representative groups to work on how we pursue the delivery of that trade room risk mitigation on behalf of the broader Australian wool industry and particularly Australian growers. And and largely the locations that were assessed were 
logically locations that have previously processed wool. So Australia processed a lot of the wool that we grew to some extent up until the 1990s, at which time it started to get offshored due to cost of processing and it followed lower cost processing markets. What we came up with after that multi-criteria assessment and the risk assessment was the preferred locations to look at going forward would be a Metro Vic or a uh, Riverina New South Wales or potentially a, a South Australian um, green triangle type option. As I understand it, Metro- Metropolitan Victoria was the, the number one choice on the list? Yeah, that was the one that stacked up most most strongly. Adam Dawes is the General Manager of War Producers Australia. Ending that report from Josh Becker, let's go to markets. First up, let's go to Casino Cattle. Well, Michael, after seven months, we have beef back in Casino. There was a larger yarding of 2,244 head, which is an increase of 1,000 head from the sale in Lismore last week. The yarding comprised of a good supply of young cattle and 800 cows were sold. Quality was very good, with a bit more weight than most of the cattle. The market was easier, with restock weaner steers selling 10 to 20 cents cheaper. They sold from 328 to 454 cents. Restocker weaner heifers ranged from 250 to 350 cents. And restocker yelling steers sold from 300 to 400, depending on weight. And the restocker yelling heifers topped at 320. There was a full field of export buyers operating, with bullocks and steers selling firm. They ranged from 292 to 324 cents, and the grown heifers topped at 316. The very good offering of cows saw prices 10 to 15 cents cheaper. Two score cows sold from 220 to 235, three score medium weight savage 240, and heavy cows ranged from 250 to 269 cents. Best of the heavy bulls, 286 cents. This is Doug Robson, Casino. Yes, uh, good to see them back at Casino. Let's uh, go to Carcor Sheep and Lambs now. Numbers dropped by 2,300 for a yarding of 3,800 lambs. It was good quality yarding with good lines of trade weights along with a few pens of heavyweights. All the regular buyers are present. Trade weight lambs were firm to $5 cheaper with new season lambs weighing 20 to 24 kilos selling from 113 to 158 and old lambs 20 to 24 kilos 116 to 173. Heavyweight lambs held firm, with lambs over 24 kilos selling from 188 to 244. Heavy hoggets sold to 120. Lambs to re-sockers sold from 30 to 126. Sheep numbers also fell for a yarding of 3,900 mixed mutton, where most categories held firm. Renew ewes sold from 28 to 137. Cross red ewes 37 to 115. And merino weathers sold to 67 and rams to $26. This has been Angus Williams for MLA at CTLX. Let's go to Cowra Sheep and Lambs now. And Rob Pearce, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. Lamb numbers halved for 27.50. Quality was good for the heavyweights and varied for the remainder. And they were mainly trade and heavy pens. The lighter grades were also well supplied. Medium and heavy trades were 5 to 10 cheaper. 20 to 22 kilos, 138 to 150. 22 to 24, 151 to 168. Averaging 6.75 to 7.05 cents. Heavyweights were 6 to 10 cheaper, 24 to 26, 177 to 178, 26 to 30, 194 to 207, 30 plus 219 to a top of 220, averaging 695 to 720 cents. Stores sold from 50 to 105. And month numbers fell by 500 to 960. Quality was mixed. 
prices held firm and heavy first cross use sold from 69 to 97. It's been Rob Pearce from MLA at Cowra. Thanks Rob, let's go to Yash Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. With rain in the supply area, lamb numbers dropped to 6,150. The quality also fell, with prime lambs limited to a few pens in each agent's run. All weights were offered, but not all the usual buyers operated. The plainer lambs and fewer buyers resulted in a cheaper market. New season trades were 10 to 15 cheaper, selling from 128 to 161, averaging 610 cents for the woolly lambs. Restockers picked up the lighter weights, $15 dearer, most selling between 104 to 128. Sean trades dropped 15 to 20, 127 to 161, and averaged 640 to 660. The heavy lambs were back 10, 160 to 198, or 670 cents on average, with extra heavies reaching 214. Heavy hoggets eased 6, topping at 138. Mutton numbers were similar, prices dearer on the lightweights, but 6 to 10 cheaper on the Medium heavy, Marina U's reached 132 to restockers and crossbreds 118, most average 280 to 320. And this has been Graham Richard. And to Mossvale Cattle. Good afternoon, Michael. Numbers remain similar for a total yarding of 1,240, mostly good quality cattle. There were some outstanding runs of yearlings to suit the feedlot buyers, up to 10 better, with the Euro cross steers reaching 416 and the heifer portion 412. British bred steers to feed 260 to 394 and the heifers averaged 310. Trade cattle 15 better, prime veilers topped at 460, yearling steers 294 to 422, heifers 288 to 412. Strong competition from the restockers, resulting in much dearer trends. Steers 310 to 468, heifers 298 to 358. Heavy ground steers slip 10, quality related 240 to 298, heifers firm 238 to 283, heavy three and four score cows back 22, 236 to 268, cows to the restockers reached 248 cents per kilo. This is David Kent at Mossvale for MLA. And Singleton Cattle. A decrease of 400 heads saw Singleton Agents Yard 868 cattle. Cow numbers the least affected with around 170 yarded. There were a few pens of heavy bullocks and heifers on offer. The balance being young, well-conditioned vealers, weaners and yearlings. Usual buying group in attendance. Market trends varied throughout the sale with the urgency of last week not as apparent. Light restock of steer weaners still keenly sought to be 10 cents dearer. 280 to 415, heifer counterparts slightly cheaper, 254 to 330. The best bee muscle local butcher Vila over 330 kilos made to 378. Heavy feeder yearling steers over 400 kilos saw a correction of 19 cents, 330 to 358. Heavy grown steers, heifers and bullocks over 500 kilos to the exporters saw similar rates selling from 270 to 314. Two score cows cheaper by 10 to 15 cents, 140 to 262. Heavy three and four scores slightly cheaper, 248 to 283 cents. Angus Barlow, MLA at Singleton. And that's the market information for today. And I was just saying earlier that uh, tomorrow we'll be broadcasting from Narrabri, from the University of Sydney's, Sydney campus there, because uh, they're going to put the spotlight on the hemp industry, uh, growing it, and also the uh, the future for the industry as well in terms of uh, a new fibre. So we'll have a look at that issue on the program tomorrow, broadcasting from Narrabri from the uh, University of Sydney campus. And we'll also look at some of the other innovative things that uh, they're doing. Look at the wheat breeding program as well there and uh, a whole range of other things. Digital ag- agriculture too. So um, uh, lots to talk about from Narrabri tomorrow. You're listening to The Country Hour. We're heading up to news time at one o'clock.